0: good to be with you this evening, and to look out and see some new faces compared to Um, about the same number of people, so we got some more people away, but we've got visitors among us. It's good to have you with us, and hopefully we'll all be encouraged by our time together this evening. We've all been there, right? We've been caught with our hand in the cookie jar. That gut-clenching feeling of fear and uh uh-oh. I'm in trouble, right? That's not exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight. I just realized that's kind of hard to see on the screen behind me. I'm sorry. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the conscience. And the conscience, we think, it's that, it's that sense of right and wrong. It's a little different from that fear of punishment that we, that we get, but it can sometimes feel the same way. At other times it's just this nagging kind of in the back of our back of our minds like should we be doing this should should this um, be on our minds or should we be contemplating doing this We're going to look at what what the conscience is but also what is it for what do we use it for and how can we protect it because it's important to us? We need to make sure that we're doing what we can to protect it and use it the way that God has intended for us to. So we're going to start by defining our conscience. What is it, Webster says, The sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character, together with a feeling of obligation to do right or be good. Dictionary.com says the inner sense of what is right or wrong in one's conduct or motives, impelling one towards the right decision. What does this mean? It's that sense inside us that tells us that something is right or wrong. Well, that's pretty subjective, right? How? Where does that come from? Because your sense of right and wrong may be different from mine. This was a big point in uh, one of my college classes, sociology. It was all about the difference in, you know, um, that age old question, nature versus nurture, and which is which. Well, there's certainly, in this case, a lot of nurture that goes into this answer of what we deem right or wrong. So, what is it? What does it do? We're going to start there and then we're going to go back to really why we have it. We have a law of principles in the New Testament. When when we look through the New Testament and we're looking for what we're supposed to be doing, we don't see a lot of thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do this. But we have principles that we are to love the Lord our God, love our neighbors do nothing out of selfish ambition or deceit, right? We're, we're going to look at these, ver- these verses, but we don't have a law of strict do this and don't do that, as the old law was. We, we see very much that in the old law. We have Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all talking about the laws. If, um, if you attend here regularly, we've just gone through that in our classes that we have list after list after list of what the laws were. And if they were to be read regularly so that everyone knew what to do and what not to do. Well, the thing is, when you have a law that that's, that's that precise, that has that much detail, it's pretty easy to know what's right and what's wrong because it's defined for you. It's spelled out. Now, your conscience may be telling you, hey, I'm doing the wrong thing. I know this is the wrong thing, but I'm doing it anyway. But we're going to see that our conscience also helps us determine based on what we know Whether something's right or wrong, but first we're going to look at a couple of verses, and we're going to see what these precise laws ended up doing to the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse or twenty-nine, verse thirteen, it says, "Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandment of men." What happened? They got to the point, first of all, they spent most of their history not following the law at all or doing so as much as they wanted to. We see that all through uh, the period of Joshua and the judges and the kings. What happened? They kept the parts of the law that they wanted to. Most of the time, they didn't keep much of it at all. They go off to captivity as punishment for their lack of law-keeping. They come back, and they keep the law, but what's missing? The heart is missing from their service. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus addresses this as well. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, and we'll start in verse 3 there. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? The Pharisees had come to Jesus and said, Why do your, why do your disciples transgress the, the um, tradition of the elders that they don't wash their hands before they eat? This is what Jesus says, starting back in verse 4, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah the prophet say about you, these things, these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees were so precise in their law-keeping, tithing the mint and the anise and the cumin, believing out the weightier matters of the law. They left the heart of the law while keeping the letter of it. Well, in fact, they didn't keep the letter of it because they neglected the weightier matters, Jesus says. The New Testament's not like that. Our law isn't like that. The law of Christ really addresses the heart. We have an example in John chapter 2 where Jesus goes to the temple. And in the temple, he sees money changers and vendors selling animals for sacrifices. Necessary things, right? They needed to be able to offer sacrifices and they were coming from other parts of the known world and they needed to change out their money. It was necessary, but was it appropriate? It wasn't because the temple was filled with livestock and people exchanging money. What was the temple? It was God's presence among his people it was where people were go to were to go to dedicate themselves and their time their thoughts their mind to god and to his will so then this is going on in the temple what's missing sure the actions everything's being done in the temple too much Right, is being done in the temple at this point. But the heart is missing. That attitude of service and of respect and honor is gone. Because it wasn't the leaders, it wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't the Sadducees who were driving out this marketplace, it was Jesus coming in to restore worship as it should have been. Also in Matthew chapter 19, if you'll go there with me, just a couple pages over here, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, we see the rich young ruler, as we call him. He comes to Jesus and he says... Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, but come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What happened? He kept the letter of the law. He did good for others through it, but when it came to fully dedicating himself and his heart to God, He was unwilling because of what he had. Then in Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 7, Paul begins this section by using the example of a woman in a marriage. Verse 1 says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. He goes on to say that as long as a woman is married, she is under the law of her husband. But when her husband dies, she is freed from that law and can marry another. So verse 5, For when when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. There's more to keeping God's law than just looking for the I can do this and I can't do this. If we're looking for it, we're going to have a lot of trouble finding it. Instead, God wants our heart. He wants our hearts. Jesus really summarizes this whole thing in Matthew 22. A lawyer comes to him and asks him, What is the greatest commandment? Here's Jesus' answer. In verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What do we see here? If we have a heart to love and serve God with everything we have, and that same love and concern for our brothers, then the whole law and the prophets will be wrapped up in that. We will know and do the law if we do that. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. And then Philippians 2 verse 3, we see, the same, the same thing said a little different way by Paul. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others as better than himself. That sacrificial attitude. Attitude of this person is better than me, this person should be put before me. So my actions are going to put this person first because they're more important. Our conscience is important. It is how we know what's right or wrong. The thing is, our conscience develops through our home first, right? It's developed by our parental figures. They're the first ones that tell us what's right or what's wrong. Then we get a little older and other people start to come into that sphere of influence, our teachers, our peers. As we get older, TV, social media the news, all these things start to crowd in and try to teach us what's right and what's wrong according to their beliefs. Hopefully, we all have had parents who instilled in us what the Bible says, what God says about what's right or wrong. But as time goes on, that can change, that can be influenced. Well, not everyone grows up with, a, with godly parents. They don't grow up in a godly home, and they don't learn to have a pure conscience. The good news is that conscience can be changed. It can be changed for the better. We see King Manasseh in Second Chronicles, one of the worst kings in either kingdom, Judah or Israel. Second Chronicles 33, if you'll be turning there, we'll read a few verses there. Manasseh was the son of one of the best kings, Hezekiah. But he did not follow in, a, in his father's steps. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the bales and made wooden images. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the Son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Manasseh went so far as to sacrifice his children to the idols of the land. It goes on to say more about his evil deeds. But God punishes him for it. He punishes him, and he's taken captive. In his captivity, Manasseh has a change of heart. His heart is pricked, and he turns back to the Lord. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought up upon them the captains of the armies of the king of Assyria, "...who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord as God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon, and the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate and it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great high. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities in Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars which he had built in the monument and in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Manasseh had a change of heart. God bless him. He was able to strengthen the city and he undid some of his damage. So our hearts, our conscience, can change for the better when we change our actions for the better. Well, just like our conscience can change for the better, it can also change for the worse. And this stopped advancing. There we go. Our conscience can change for the worse just as quickly, if not quicker, than it can change for the better. In fact, a lot of the times it's easier for it to change for the worse. We see in Judges chapter 2, they've been given the land. They have just taken it. They're inhabiting it. But they failed to drive out the peoples of the land. They failed to drive out those who would influence them for evil. And In verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. What happened? They were in the land. They were serving God. But then their hearts were turned by the people of the land. They were influenced for evil. And their hearts and their consciences changed. Go to 1 Corinthians with me too. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're warned to be careful who we associate with. Because in verse 33 it says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. What happens? We're around the wrong people. We make the wrong friends. And they influence us and convince us to do what we know to be wrong. And the first time we do wrong, we feel pretty bad about it. And it gnaws at us. The second time, probably the same. The third time, maybe a little bit less. It continues and continues until we've torn down that conscience. We've torn it down to the point where we don't feel bad for doing the wrong thing. Our conscience has changed for the worse. On the reverse side of that, we've been doing the wrong thing, but we start to do the right thing. Then, if we make a mistake and go back to the wrong thing, it hurts again when we do it. Why? Because we changed. Our heart, our conscience has changed. And now we don't think of that as right, we think of it as wrong. So how do we protect it? How do we protect that conscience? Keep it pure. Pharaoh was hardened against God. Moses came to Pharaoh said the words of God, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Pharaoh refused, and his heart was hardened just a little bit more against God and against the people of Israel. Then what happens? God starts to send the plagues, and every time Pharaoh refuses and his heart hardens a little bit more. More and more. Until even after the death of the firstborn has swept over the nation of Egypt, he says, Get out of here. And then what does he do? He chases them down to bring them back. His heart was hardened against God each time he told him no. How do we, how do people get? so far from God today? You know, people who start at the Bible, start at an accurate knowledge of His will, how do they get so far away? Mr. Steve, over the last couple of weeks, has talked about traditions in a couple of different lessons. Last week, he talked about ancient Christianity, how far we've come from what Christianity looked like in the first century, for the most part. And he went to 1 Timothy chapter 4. So if you'll turn there with me, 1 Timothy chapter 4. He made very specific connections to the Catholic Church there from this passage and some of their principles. We're going to take a slightly different focus in that same passage, starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. How did the Catholic Church come to be when they started right here. Well, they heard something. They heard something that was contrary or found something, supposedly, that was contrary and didn't verify it. Then they heard it again. They started to believe it. That beginning of belief grew And gnawed at them. And then once they believed it or didn't care that it was wrong, they started teaching it. They taught more and more and more until the Catholic Church became what it did. How did it happen? Verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So based on this, it sounds like they knew what they were saying, right? Speaking lies and hypocrisy, there's an amount of knowledge of what's going on there. And as they do it, as they continue to do it, it gnaws at them and gnaws at them until it doesn't. And they're just seared to it. So again, how do we protect it? Paul has a lot to say about the conscience throughout his writings. First, he said he lived in all good conscience in all of his deeds. Go to Acts 23. Acts 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. What had Paul done? He started out a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was persecuting the church. He was doing this because he believed that was an uprising against God's people, the Jews. He drugged them out of houses. He participated in stonings. He was on his way to get permission to go into other areas when he learned the truth. But until that point, he lived in all good conscience in what he was doing. He believed it, and he lived by it. then Paul was concerned for the protection of the conscience of others. In the Old Testament, there were very specific laws about what could and couldn't be eaten. And when the New Covenant came along, Peter had trouble with that in Acts chapter 10. When he was given a vision by God and told, kill, rise, kill, and eat, these animals that he had never touched in his life. Peter wasn't the only one that struggled with this, right? A lot of Christians in the first century struggled, or at least Jewish Christians, failed to reconcile the fact that they had lived this way and it was considered dirty, unclean for them to eat these things, but now they could. Well, beyond that, the sacrifices, the food in the marketplace was often food that had been sacrificed to idols first. And it would be easy to be eating and have your conscience gnawing at you like, I shouldn't be eating this or this is wrong for me to be eating in either of those situations. So what is Paul's concern here he's concerned enough for the conscience that he's talking about what foods they should or shouldn't be eating and who they should eat them with why because he wants to protect the conscience in verse 7 of 1st Corinthians 8 however there is not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to idol and their conscience being weak is defiled so what happens? A Gentile becomes a Christian, a Gentile used to worshiping these idols, and part of that worship is sacrificing and eating these sacrifices to these idols. Either another Gentile Christian or a Jewish Christian comes along and eats meat from the market, eats meat from wherever. Because he he can eat with a clean conscience because he doesn't associate that meat with the idol. He doesn't think of eating that as a sacrifice. But to this other person it is. Verse 8, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. He says, it doesn't matter if we eat or if we don't eat. It doesn't commend us to God if we can eat this with a clear conscience. Or it doesn't bring us down before Him if we can't. Verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those offerings, those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's concern here isn't even for his own conscience or for the conscience of one who can eat, but for the one who may see him eating and be offended or worse, made to think, I can do this. They go and do it, and they do something that they believe is sin, and tear down that conscience. So what was Paul's response? If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. How do we protect our conscience? By avoiding the things that we know to be wrong. Whether they're actually wrong or not, if we think they're wrong, then we need to stay away from them unless we find blatantly that we were wrong and what we thought to be wrong was actually right. Otherwise, if we think it to be wrong, then to us it is, and we should avoid it. Or if it's something that might be okay to me, but wrong to one of my brethren in Christ, then I should avoid it for that same person purpose like it's offensive to me that's how we protect not only our conscience but the conscience of our brethren as well let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 again steve used this same uh, passage in talking about traditions, to speak about things um, in how we dress that may or may not be necessary, but reflect our um, importance of something. But here, we're actually going to talk about the modesty side of this. In verse 9, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Again, we have a law of principles. We're not told we can wear this, we can't wear that. Instead, we're told to dress in a way that is proper, in a way that reflects godliness and holiness in our lives. That means there is a good deal of variation in that among Christians. We have to make that decision, that determination of what is right or wrong to a certain extent. And it's easy for us to think one thing is okay, but have a brother or sister who does not. What is our obligation here? Just like in the matter of eating meat or not, we need Paul's attitude of if this causes my brother to stumble, then I will never be part of it. So the length of our shorts or where our shirts come to or don't. What is my brother, what is my sister going to think about that? Will it offend my brethren or cause them to do something against their conscience? So where are we at tonight? Where are we at in our conscience? Is it in alignment with God's Word? You know, Paul didn't start out with the conscience that Christ wanted him to have. He had a good conscience, a clean conscience, but a clean conscience without knowledge. Is just as bad as a bad conscience without knowledge or with knowledge. Paul had to change, and he did change, and he still lived in good conscience. Is your conscience in alignment with God's word this evening? Have you started your walk with Christ? Have you been cleansed from your sin? Or does your conscience prick at you every time an invitation is offered? Does your conscience keep you awake at night because you know there's wrong in your life? What is your conscience telling you this evening? Are you right with God? Have you been baptized? Have you been living a faithful life, but then started to stumble, started to ignore that conscience and do what's wrong? That conscience can be built back up and you can have peace and rest in your relationship with Christ. If we can help you this evening, please come as we stand and sing together.